home. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) This episode was first broadcast in 2015. Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Kerry Doherty tells tales of the history of rockets in Australia. But first up, here's the news. Lego with virtual worms. The nervous system of a Cenorhabditis elegans nematode worm has been simulated in software to drive a LEGO Mindstorms EV3 robot by Timothy Busbus from the Open Worm Project. The project's ultimate goal is to completely simulate the elegans worm as a virtual organism, living entirely in software. Mature nematode brains don't form new connections. All hermaphrodite adult elegans worms have the same complement of 302 neurons and the same set of connections between them. This makes building models easier. Buspus started by mapping the connections between the worm's 302 neurons and simulating them in software. The worm's nose neurons were replaced by a sonar sensor on the robot. The motor neurons running down both sides of the worm now correspond to motors on the left and right of the robot. No pre-programmed instructions were given to the robot, and yet it behaved in ways that are similar to real worms. Stimulation of the nose stopped forward motion. Touching the back and front touch sensors made the robot move forward and backwards accordingly. Stimulating the food sensor made the robot move forward. A digitally simulated brain placed in a Lego body can act much like the real thing, at least if you're a worm. Geneticists can make live nematodes behave differently by removing certain individual neurons. And Timothy Buspis reproduced the same changes in the Lego Wormbot by removing the same neurons virtually. The hermaphrodite worm's brain contains 302 neurons and 7,000 interconnections. The human brain, in comparison, has on average 86 billion neurons and 100 trillion interconnections. Worm brains don't form new connections, but human brains do. Currently, the complete wiring diagram, that is, the connectome model of the worm's neural map, is being transferred to a Raspberry Pi, and a self-contained Pi robot is being constructed. Of course, the open worm is open source, so anyone can play with the model worms. Does this technology mean that in the future, human brains could be accurately simulated to behave like real humans? Should humans be simulated? Will the virtual worms allow us to even try? I, for one, welcome our new worm robot overlords.
You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on diffusionradio.com. Diffusion Science on the airwaves, spreading knowledge in a swinging way. From atoms to molecules, it's all in play. Tune in now, let's rock and sway. Diffusion Science, we're on a roll, exploring mysteries, heart and soul. Learning together, we're on the go. On the radio, let the knowledge flow. Kerry Doherty was formerly curator of space technology at the Powerhouse Museum and also a lecturer with the International Space University. I met her in a coffee shop to talk about the history of rockets and space travel in Australia. Well, I thought we might start with uh, talking a little bit about the prehistory of rocketry in Australia. A lot of people think that uh, the first rockets in Australia had to do with Woomera, but in fact, use of rockets in Australia goes back into the 19th century. And most people are probably going to say, what, rockets in the 19th century? (laughs) Well, it's, it's interesting, but in the very beginning of the 19th century, in 1803, Colonel William Congreve of the British Army actually developed a new war rocket which was named after him, it was called Congreve Rocket. It became very widely used as a, uh, essentially like an artillery weapon. It was also used as an incendiary, it was used for signalling, very widely used by British forces in the first half of the 19th century. And in fact, if you know the words of the American national anthem, the rocket's red glare, it's actually referring to the use of Congreve rockets against uh, Fort McHenry in the United States. But uh, here in Australia, the earliest known use of Congreve rockets was actually, interestingly enough, by the crew of HMS Beagle. Not while Charles Darwin was on board, (laughs) but after the Darwin expedition, they were also mapping uh, the northern part of Australia and they had Congreve rockets on board and apparently they fired them at uh, some local Aboriginal people up along the Kimberley that they thought looked a bit dangerous. So that's the first known use of uh, (laughs) of, um, rockets in Australia. A lot of the early inland explorers also carried uh, rockets mainly to use as uh, signals if their parties were separated. But another interesting thing that came out of the... Congreve rocket. Around the mid-1820s, a a chap on the Isle of Wight in the UK, a fellow by the name of um, Dennett, saw a need for a maritime rescue rocket. And so he actually modified a Congreve rocket to create what they called a Dennett rocket or Dennett's rockets. And these were the first really successful maritime rescue rockets. So they started to be used in Australia around about the 1850s. A lot of places around the south southern coast of Australia where the ships would be sailing past on their way to Sydney or Melbourne actually were equipped with Dennett rockets on their lifeboat stations. Unfortunately because those rockets themselves were shipped from England these were gunpowder fueled of course and the gunpowder would tend to get damp and claggy and so these rockets often didn't work as they should. They were very effective in England because of course the powder was nice and fresh. So a, uh, a chemist in Adelaide fellow by the name of Frederick Hustler, he decided that he would try to develop a, a better local maritime rescue rocket because there were a couple of losses of ships in along the South Australian coast around the 1860s, early 1870s. And he, uh, although he was like a chemist by trade or profession, 
He was also a fairly well-respected amateur pyrotechnist. In other words, he made his own fireworks as well and actually provided fireworks for a lot of celebrations in Adelaide. And so he put that knowledge to use and actually uh, developed a uh, what apparently was a, or supposedly was a better rocket, a more reliable uh, maritime rocket than the Dennett. And he demonstrated it to the South Australian government in 1873 and was actually hoping that they would give him orders for making more of these to equip the lifeboat stations. However, it seems that I don't know whether he wanted to charge more than the cost of Dennett rockets or whether there was some some other reason. But unfortunately, despite the apparent superiority of these rockets, they were never picked up on by the government. So another early example of Australian innovation (laughs) not not being supported by local governments in Australia. So he's the last rocket experimenter we know of in the 19th century in Australia. But in the early part of the 20th century, there was a period that is generally known as the, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, it's often referred to as the interplanetary movement or the spaceflight movement. And this actually began around the early to mid 20s, was a period when there was a lot of experimentation in rocketry going on and uh, quite a few developments Robert Goddard in the United States actually developed and flew the first successful liquid fuel rocket. So there's a lot of experimentation in the United States, a lot of experimentation in Europe as well. And in fact, the developers of the V2 would uh, actually begin their careers as rocketeers, uh, or many of them, in uh, what they call the the VFR, or the, pardon my German, the Verein für Raumschifffahrt which was the Society for Spaceship Travel, which was uh, probably the most significant of the experimental uh, rocket groups in Europe in the pre-war period. So there was a lot of interest. This is a period also when science fiction is becoming very uh, popular and there's this very, very widespread, and it's not only Europe and, and the United States, a lot of other parts of the world as well, you're starting to get people interested in trying to develop rockets, you know, with spaceflight ultimately in mind. And a young man out in Australia by the name of uh, Brian Falkenberg, who lived in a little town in rural Victoria called uh, Biodoc, he was reading science fiction magazines, amazing and astounding, these magazines coming from the United States. And these obviously inspired him to think about developing rockets for spaceflight. Now, he was only about 16, 17 at the time. Um, He obviously didn't have a lot of technical knowledge, but he was interested in uh, experimenting with uh, with trying to develop some kind of rockets. And uh, we don't know much about what he did, but he sent one letter to the American Interplanetary Society, which was soon to become the American Rocket Society. This is one of the really big experimental groups in the US. And he'd seen them advertising in um, one of his issues of Amazing, or Amazing Stories, as it was at that time. And so he sent them a letter and sort of told them all about his, his experiments. And uh, so this is the only information we actually have about them because I later tracked down, unfortunately he passed away by the time I discovered his story, but I did track down members of his family and uh, they were sort of saying that in fact when he'd passed away, although he had a huge archive of other aspects of his life, there was nothing relating to this early rocketry, which is 
bit sad. But he developed some kind of horizontal rocket that ran on wheels. It apparently had four wheels. And um, it's not quite clear what it was powered by. He described them as flame rocket tubes, which I suspect means they were possibly fireworks of some sort. You know, maybe big skyrockets that he'd pulled apart and, and installed in his rocket in some way. But apparently he managed to get it to run along the ground on its on rocket power <laughs> quite happily. But as I say, being a young lad, whether he got himself into some kind of trouble with his rocket experiments and was promptly told uh, not to do it anymore, we don't know. But Or it might just be that around about a little bit after this time, he discovered amateur radio and apparently uh, spent the rest of his life being heavily involved in amateur radio. So whether, whether the rocketry just lost out to amateur radio or not, it's, it's a bit hard to say. But it's an interesting early story of an experimenter in the 20th century. And, uh, you know, there may in fact be others out there that I just haven't run across yet. And in fact, if any of your listeners know of any stories that they think I might be interested in, if they could perhaps contact Ian and uh, he can put us in touch. This is a story of the future, but not the very distant future. Like all stories of the future, however, its beginnings lie far back in the past, as far back as the first man on earth to gaze at the stars and wonder if someday, somehow, he might travel to them. Travel through space. Sometimes mishaps occurred, and men paid for them with their lives. But the work went on. Experiments in celestial navigation, astrophysics, aerodynamics, until finally only one obstacle remained. That, as our story begins, turned out to be the oldest obstacle in the history of mankind, the human factor. And that was from Tobor the Great. And now... More rocket stories from Kerry Doherty. The next really interesting story in rocketry in Australia was actually the formation of the Australian Rocket Society. And this was a group that was developed up in Brisbane. Now, again, we have to backtrack for a moment to explain the ancestry to this group. One of the things that grew out of the, the spaceflight movement, this early interest in developing rocketry, was the development of male rockets. And there was a, an Austrian uh, gentleman, Friedrich Schmeidel, who was um, particularly interested in, in developing rockets that could carry mail and small parcels you know, across the valleys in the Alps as a way of making it easier to deliver mail to sort of remote communities. But he didn't have a lot of money, so to, to actually fund his um, experiments, what he started, and, and also to demonstrate how you could carry mail, what he did was actually create envelopes, with souvenir envelopes, which he would then carry, you know, stuff into his rockets and they would be 
well, either if the rocket didn't blow up, they'd be <laughs> carried somewhere, and then he would sell them. Because remember, too, that this is the early period of air routes beginning, so airmail is uh, beginning, and, and airmail collecting had become very common and, so, uh, and very popular. And so rocket mail kind of stemmed from that. It became quite a collecting fad by the, the end of the 1920s. And a number of other people, especially in Europe, jumped on this idea of, of mail rockets. Some of them very clearly were just interested in the philatelic side of it. And, you know, they'd launched their, their so-called mail rocket. It was nothing more than an ordinary maritime rocket. And they'd literally tie a canister to the back of it with a number of envelopes in it and, you know, shoot it from point A to point B and then, then sell it as, as rocket mail. And there was a particular character in Germany by the name of Zucker, and he claimed to have developed or claimed to be in the process of developing some what looked like quite advanced mail rockets. In fact, the guy was pretty much of a fraud. And, uh, you know, he would sell covers that he claimed had been flown in his rockets on times when they couldn't have been or the rockets themselves were often not much more than shells with a few bits of, you know, with a few small gunpowder charges attached to the outside of them, which, of course, usually blew up yeah. uh, whenever he tried to fire them. So, but he was a great showman and he got himself a lot of publicity. And, of course, especially at a distance from Australia, people didn't realise that this guy was, in fact, very shonky. And so he was his work was actually somewhat of an inspiration to male rocketeers in Australia. And so this group in Queensland was formed from a group who were already airmail collectors. And their, uh, one of their members, uh, Alan Hunter Young, he, he was actually an architect, but he, he genuinely was interested in the idea of developing mail rockets to deliver packages and mail to outback Queensland, you know, much more quickly, obviously, than it could get there on horseback or even in a, even in a plane, because Qantas had been sort of founded by this time. But, you know, he thought rockets could actually do the job better and he was also interested in the idea of being able to deliver mail to islands from shipboard. So he had a serious interest in mail rockets, but quite frankly, he had very little technical expertise and he doesn't appear to have actually been interested in systematic experimentation the way the serious rocketry groups were, were doing it in Europe or in the United States. But, uh, in fact, something I discovered that was quite interesting when I did some research on the Australian Rocket Society is that Young uh, would more or less design what he thought the rocket should look like. And interestingly, a lot of his designs, you can clearly see the influence of, of Zucker's sort of designs on what he's done. But he actually had a local plumbing company fabricate the rockets for him. So they obviously rolled the tubes and everything. He also didn't know anything about explosives. And he seems to have, again, had some training or at least got some information from the gentleman who was the manager of the plumbing company, who was in fact quite experienced in explosives. And he would, during the Second World War, be charged with blowing up bridges along the Brisbane line. So he obviously had experience, but he, he, according to the information I had from that gentleman's son, he refused to actually build the charges. He didn't want to be that closely involved in the project, but he must have given Young advice on how to do it. So Young made these homemade gunpowder 
charges to, to power this rocket, but because he really apparently didn't know what he was doing. This was one of the big drawbacks of their male rockets. <laughs> the first couple particularly were, or in fact the first one was a uh, highly publicised disaster. He was going to fly it across from Riverview to Morgill. But unfortunately it, it sort of kind of half blew up in the chute, the launch chute, and sort of skittered off the launch chute and that was, and blew up. So that was the end of that one. Although they rescued the, they rescued the covers, the, the envelopes, and they did post them. So this, this was kind of the, mostly the story of a lot of their experiments, that their rockets, um, more often than not, unfortunately, uh, either blew up on the pad or, or on the launch ramp or blew up in flight. They had a few that were quite successful. They did one that they, they flew at Inaugura uh, Rifle Range as part of the, there was a big philatelic event in Brisbane for the, the Jubilee of, which one would it have been, George V, I think, or George VI, I can't, I get a bit confused with those Georges sometimes. And, but, and that one was actually quite successful. That flew about 300 yards, was roughly 300 metres. So, you know, he, he had some small successes, but mostly his ambition well outran his technical ability. And there were a lot of accusations that they were only doing it for the money, so making money out of selling the uh, the covers that were being carried in the rockets, and there's there's a certain amount of justice to that charge. In that, uh, certainly one of Young's his main offsider, a gentleman by the name of Morrison, was uh, an airmail and rocket mail dealer, and you know obviously was making a profit out of dealing in the in the, in the envelopes once they'd been flown, but they. Uh, they were founded in 1935 and continued for about two years. By the end of 1937, though, they'd pretty well exhausted what funds they had. And because so many of their rockets hadn't succeeded or had failed rather spectacularly, they had, you know, lost credibility. So they pretty much died, the group pretty much died by the end of the, uh, by about the end of 1937. I think they might have had one small firing in 1938 and that was that was about it. So that was the end of their story and sadly because they weren't doing serious experimenting there was no technological heritage, no, no, nothing that came from it that was actually of any advantage to the, the worldwide rocketry movement. Now around about the same time rather interestingly there was a young chap in uh, Victoria by the name of Ken Attock he was uh, 15, so he was a schoolboy, but he actually had a, a genuine vision for spaceflight. He wrote a lot, he's a very bright young man, he wrote a lot of articles in the local papers, uh, like the Melbourne Argus, the Melbourne Herald, things like that, about the future of spaceflight. And he was also interested in male rockets. And he, you know, and clearly he was seriously interested in them, not just for the philatelic side of things although he didn't realise that Zucker was dodgy either because he patterned his first rocket on one of, one of Zucker's designs. But he, tried, he attempted to launch it in 1936 down at uh, Fisherman's Bend. Unfortunately, and partly because it was based on a, a Zucker design which wasn't going to fly anyway, it blew up at launch, which was a bit sad because he, he was not daunted, he wanted to come back and try again and he developed another rocket that he was going to fly for the, uh, the coronation, must have been George VI coronation, that's it, in 37. So he developed another rocket 
But unfortunately, the authorities wouldn't let him launch it because of the previous failure. They decided that it was too dangerous and he was prohibited from being able to launch his rocket, which is a shame. But he, uh, as I say, he was still a schoolboy at the time, but he was very, very interested in, uh, in spaceflight and uh, had the war not intervened, he could very well have come back to, you know, come back to Australia after the war and been a, um, a serious rocket experimenter. Sadly, though, he was, he volunteered very early for service. He was in the intelligence corps and was, uh, he was captured, taken a prisoner of war on Crete. And very sadly, in 1941, at the age of 20, he was uh, killed escaping from a prisoner of war camp. He's trying to get intelligence, you know, back to his uh, unit and he was uh, killed. That's very sad because I think he could have been a, a an important figure in rocketry experimentation after the Second World War had he uh, had he lived. And that pretty well brings us to the end of the prehistory of rocketry prior to the development of Woomera after the Second World War. I'm hoping that you'll find this story interesting and I'd, what I'd like to do in coming months is actually present a number of other stories of Australia's involvement with space because there's a, a, some fascinating stories out there and they're largely unknown in the, in the community. So I hope you'll uh, invite me back for the future. Well, Kerry Doherty, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Kerry Doherty talking about the prehistory of rocketry in Australia. Kerry will present more stories about the history of space in Australia in 2015. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes or Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2 NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2 X in Canberra, and 3 MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And please check the website for photos and links about this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography, collecting, 
Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.